This episode is brought to you by Dietz and Watson. Uh, Molly, it's time we have the talk about hot dogs. Oh, oh, okay. Well, hey, (laughs) I'm looking for a hot dog that's the real deal, Matthew. Like a classic hot dog that like when you think of like the platonic ideal of a hot dog, Mm -hmm. I recommend Dietz and Watson's Dietz Dogs. Ah, well, I've heard that they're handcrafted and made using only Dietz and Watson premium meat. I can vouch for this because Dietz and Watson sent us a big box of hot dogs and other delights. And wife of the show, Lori, and I had them for dinner last night. We had uh, the classic beef Dietz dogs with uh, toasted buns with sauerkraut and pickled jalapenos and Dietz and Watson ballpark style yellow mustard. Do you think you'd recommend Dietz and Watson hot dogs for fried rice? Oh, yeah. Fried rice with some sliced hot dogs. I'm going to be doing that soon. Wife of the show, Lori, is going to be making the hot dog flour buns from Christina Cho's cookbook, Mooncakes and Milk Bread. Very excited for this. Mm, And I'm especially pleased because Dietz and Watson does things the right way. So this means like no additives, no fillers, no artificial flavors, no cutting corners. You can feel good about this stuff. Dietz and Watson. It's a family thing since 1939. Shop now at Dietz slash the right way. That's Dietz, D-I-E-T-Z, and Watson.com slash the right way. I'm Matthew. And I'm Molly. And this is Spilled Milk, the show where we cook something delicious, eat it all, and you can't have any. Today, we are talking about gumbo, and we have a special guest who we are very excited to talk with. Yeah, we're very excited in part because we know so little about gumbo, but we knew we needed to do an episode on it. This is true. And also, this guest, I think, is the perfect person to talk with us about gumbo because he is from small town Louisiana. Uh Uh-huh. Also, Matthew, you and I are both fans of this guy's music. Yes. And uh, so, yeah, I'll try I'll try not to like detour, derail the conversation to just trying to talk to him about singing for half an hour. Should I tell the listener who he is? Fine. Okay. We are going to be uh, bringing on Durand Jones here soon. We're all going to learn a lot about gumbo. Uh, he has a wonderful gumbo recipe yes. that we will be discussing. Okay. I'm yeah. really excited for this. Okay. okay. Let's start with memory lane. I did not grow up in small town Louisiana. How about you? I did not. I grew up in a mid-sized town, Oklahoma. I think I went to Louisiana for the first time as like a kid. I went to Baton Mm -hmm. Rouge, but I really don't remember anything about it. So this is really useful for our memory lane. Okay. And then I do remember uh, going to New Orleans with my dear friend Ben in 2016. We met up there. We sort of ate our way through Ben who you ate hot dogs at a Las Vegas buffet with? That's right. I do all my best eating with Ben and with you. Anyway, uh, yeah, Ben and I met up in uh, in New Orleans and, you know, we did uh, all kinds of things like the 25-cent martini lunch at Commander's Palace. I don't like martinis, though. Yeah, I don't either. I hate them. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, what else did we do? Oh, Ben bought some cigars and we, well, I attempted to smoke a cigar on the, like, gross also. the stoop of the Airbnb we rented. And at some point I ate gumbo and I cannot for the life of me remember where it was, but it was delicious. Okay. But yeah, like I think, I think one of the great things about New Orleans is like, you know, there are like special restaurants, but also like the, like base quality of food is so high. Like I, the only gumbos I remember in New Orleans were just at like neighborhood places that like, if you mention the name, no one from outside of town is going to know it. 
You know what? I feel pretty certain, actually, that my gumbo was at Dookie Chase's. Oh, okay. That is a famous place. That is yeah. a famous place. And I feel pretty certain that it was um, there as part of like their their lunch one day. Yeah. It was epic. Can I do a little martini memory, Lane, since yeah. you brought it up? Yeah, like, yeah. I have like a, a memory of going to this place in Portland with some friends when I was maybe just like senior year of high school. And like one of our friends was 21 and uh, and ordered a martini and like surreptitiously <laughs> let me have a taste. And I was like, this is so disgusting. <laughs> like, how could anyone like this? And like, there are many things like that that you taste when you're young. And then like you, you get you like learn to like them for me and martinis. Nope. <laughs> You know, it always looks so good in the glass. It, of course. Yeah, it looks God, beautiful. it looks so good in the glass. And I like vermouth. I like gin. I'm fine with vodka. I could take it or leave it. I like olives. I don't really know what my problem is, but you put it all together and it doesn't. Yeah, not, I don't well, you like You don't put olives. all those things together, but you put some <laughs> of those things together and it makes a martini. And... I don't like okay, it. Okay, we should probably do a martini episode at some point. I think oh, it would be let's fun. let's do it. Okay, let's yeah. do it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So as we were like talking about this episode, I remembered that um, in John Thorne's book, Serious Pig, he devotes a whole like third of the book to the food of Louisiana, um, like Cajun and Creole food, not because he's from there, but because he just loves it and has spent time there. And one of the essays in the book, which is like shorter than I remembered, is about is about gumbo. And I'm going to be drawing from it a bit. And so, like, to be clear, John Thorne is a white guy who is not from Louisiana, but he is really careful in the essay to cite primary sources and give credit to the black cooks and writers who invented gumbo and developed its infinite variations. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, one thing I realized, like, like wife of the show, Lori asked me, OK, so what is gumbo? And I'm like, that's not a super easy question to answer, but we'll try. Okay. Um, so in the John Thorne essay, he quotes William Faulkner Rushton. Uh, hold a on. Great name. Is this different from William Faulkner? <laughs> different from William Faulkner. <laughs> okay. Probably named for him. He was a historian okay. uh, and he wrote a book called The Cajuns that's like a history of, of uh Cajun culture and people. Um, and there's this quote from it that goes like this. When Ruth Fontenot sets out to cook a gumbo, all the pots and pans and spices in her kitchen sit up and take notice. None is certain which one or ones will be used this time around for both the recipe and the size of the serving will vary from day to day, depending on Ruth's mood and assessments of the tastes of her dinner guests. That really sums up gumbo as much as any like specifics about the dish that we're going to talk about today. Oh, wait a minute. I just remembered somewhere else I had gumbo. Okay, let's hear it. Oh, wow. Okay. This time, uh, there was something about like the the pots and pans and the guests, the, the number of guests varying uh, that made me remember this. Okay. I think, oh, I can't remember when this was. But anyway. Oh, also, I forgot uh, to do my memory lane. <laughs> I was lucky enough to have gumbo at the table of Pablo Johnson. Oh, who, yeah. Who is also a, a white man in Louisiana. Uh, incredible cook. And Pablo made a like his standard gumbo. And then I think he also made a vegetarian version because there was somebody coming to dinner that night who was vegetarian. But anyway, I had the regular gumbo. And Pablo has a pretty small kitchen. Mm -hmm. And it was just amazing, like the heat and humidity in this kitchen. I think it was a spring evening. It was a Monday. Pablo, at least at the time that I, I knew him better, um, was doing like Monday dinners often and just sort of inviting whoever was around. Anyway, giant pot of gumbo, 
big old pot of rice and it was so hot and yet uh, eating like a hot meaty soup felt like exactly the right thing to do. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, oh man, I wish I'd been there. <laughs> do you, have you met Pablo? I've never met Pablo, but I've, I've uh, like read a bunch of his writing and he's great. Oh, he's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Okay, so my memory lane, the only time I've been to Louisiana, went to New Orleans with friends in 2002. We ate really well. And yeah, like I, I know we did have lunch at Commander's Palace. And like we went to at least one other famous, famous chef kind of place. But the gumbo I remember having was just, just at like, you know, this place looks like it might be good for dinner. Let's wander in here. And it was always great. Like I remember having a crawfish etouffee that was amazing, but also just like, several different types of gumbo, all of them good, mm. always served with rice. Fantastic. And I've never cooked it. Where does this word come from? Oh, are you are you summoning Mr. <laughs> Etymology? I am. Is he okay. here? Okay. He's here. Okay. I'm not going to do the voice because I don't remember what it was. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So... Uh, the the etymology of the word gumbo is pretty straightforward with one little twist. So we are 99% sure that it comes from the Bantu language family word uh, kingombo, which uh, like appears in uh, different forms in different Bantu languages. The Bantu language family is from the Niger-Congo region in uh, sub-Saharan Africa mainly. And that word means okra. In the Bantu okay. language family, okay. uh, and the, the word uh, the word gombo also also means okra in French. Oh, however, sassafras in the form of filet powder is a very common ingredient in gumbo, and the Choctaw Native American nation contributed a lot to uh, to Cajun and Creole cuisine. And the word for sassafras in Choctaw is combo. We this what, genuinely. Uh, what are the chances? It's is that like. You know, there there are, you know, there are a lot of words in the world, but there aren't, aren't that many different ways you could put together words. And this genuinely seems to be a weird linguistic coincidence since there is so much evidence linking the word to okra in West Africa. That is wild. Yeah, it is. Okay. It is wild. Like, I'm not going to say like, uh, I'm 100 percent sure, like I am not an authority on this. Like it is possible that uh, that the Choctaw word contributed, but it seems like it's really a West African word. Sure. So so this is the official state food of Louisiana. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I would say gumbo is a stew, both in the literal sense and kind of the figurative multicultural sense, because a lot of different cooking traditions went into what it is today. Like which ones? OK, so definitely West African and African-American traditions, Choctaw, French, Spanish, like all of the cultures that that uh, created what we know as Louisiana today created mm -hmm. gumbo. OK, do you have any sense of how long this stuff has been being made? So that is a really good question. Like definitely at least a couple of centuries like yeah. there, there are kind of some things about it that are that are relatively modern in terms of like it is a. You know, there we're going to talk about like country and city gumbo, but especially like the the city style gumbo that people outside Louisiana associate with gumbo is kind of it's kind of a, a like rich dish, mm -hmm. and so like you know it's uh, it's something that that like you know requires sort of like modern modern access to like uh, cooking fats. Mm -hmm. um, so so is probably probably in current form dates from the nineteenth century. Okay. And so there are commonalities, though, to the way that they're always made, right? There's yeah. always a roux. Yep. 
Okay. Although when we, when we talk to Duran, we're gonna we're gonna see there's like more than one way to make a roux. But like gumbo typically starts with a brown roux. So like mm-hmm. cooking flour and vegetable oil uh, down in a pot, like almost never butter unless it's like someone's someone's like fancy recipe that like locals are probably going to make fun of. Like it is uh, vegetable oil and and flour cooked for a long time, like maybe forty five minutes until it's really like brown and toasty. Mm-hmm. And that that is like why gumbo has uh, like this uh, this thick brown broth sauce. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But there's more to the thickness than that, which we'll get okay. to. Okay. And then what about like the base vegetables? Uh, you know, like what do you start with? Yeah. So always like the the Louisiana uh, Holy Trinity, onion, uh, celery, and green bell pepper. I love that there's like a Holy Trinity in, yes. in uh, so many different cuisines. Yeah. So, so and like the the way it usually, the mirepoix usually gets worked in is it's interesting. And like having, having not made it, I didn't know this. Like usually you cook down the roux and then when the roux is ready, then you throw in the mirepoix and you cook that in the roux, sort of like using that oily roux as a cooking medium because it's really interesting. hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. This is this is fascinating. So it must yep. be real ugly when you first start out. You got this like brown oh, slurry, yeah, like a, and... <laughs> a fantastic smelling sludge. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. And okay. then and then you're gonna add uh, stock and uh, and like long cooking proteins and cook it for like uh, you know chicken. Cook it for up to three hours. Uh, okay. And the spices like there's gonna be some Cajun spices that go in uh, with the I should say not necessarily Cajun. There's gonna be Louisiana spices that go in with the mirepoix or at the end or both. Mm-hmm. Um. Like if you're if you're adding seafood, which many gumbos have, that's going to get added near the end so it doesn't overcook, and sure. uh, you serve it with rice. What could be better? Yeah. So where does okra come into this? Okay. So in addition to the roux, like you know, because it's made with this this thick brown roux, like that's going to add some uh, some texture, some like. Uh, I don't know, like, uh, you know, when you when you make like a stew that starts with flour, it's got it's got kind of a. Uh, like a smooth, a smooth thickness to it. And mm-hmm. then you're probably going to add some other type of thickener, and that's going to be okra or filet powder or occasionally both. So okay. here comes some sweeping generalizations. Okay. okay. So <laughs> okra is associated with city gumbo, which is most likely to be made in New Orleans and is more likely to include seafood and fresh sausage. And filet powder, which is made from dried and ground sassafras leaves, that goes into country gumbo, which is more likely to be made outside the cities and more likely to include chicken and smoked sausage. So like andouille sausage, for example. Okay. Wow. Okay. So I'm guessing I've never had country gumbo then. I don't think I have either. And country gumbo was originally made without a roux, I learned, because flour was scarce in rural areas. But nowadays it's usually made with a roux and filet powder. So, okay, wait, have yeah. you ever smelled filet powder or I like don't tasted think it? I have. Or? God, we're we are so well we're, qualified to God, this episode. <laughs> what do sassafras leaves taste like? Have you have you eaten any of those? Just like right off the tree, like yeah. like I'm like a koala or something. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, I'm a koala. Okay. All right. So both both like filet powder and okra both add like a unique flavor and texture. So filet powder is added at the end because it gets like gloopy and and the flavor cooks out if you add it too soon. And like okay. even like places will like put it on the table to like sprinkle on your gumbo and stir in. Oh, okay. So sassafras is the main flavoring that we think of when you think of like the smell and taste of root beer. Is it poisonous? Oh, uh, so or like the bark. In- 
Yeah, the bark, the bark okay. is poisonous. Like, you know, it's it's like carcinogenic in certain forms, but like filet powder is safe and like has been like determined to be safe in labs. Okay. And so, okay, wait, hold on. So does the filet powder taste anything like root beer? I know I that think, we're talking yes. bark so versus my, leaves. My impression from reading up about this is that it does. It's like a savory, herby, root beery flavor and produces like a starch thickened texture. Like if you imagine like a Chinese stir fry with a sauce that's been thickened with cornstarch or arrowroot, that kind of texture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then okra, you know, you know, the texture of okra produces like a slippery okra-y texture. That's right. And like, I really tried hard to like, like come up with descriptions for okra texture that didn't sound negative. And I like it. Oh, but I like, do too. But like describing textures in general, like the English language feels like it's kind of impoverished with like words for describing food textures. Well, and I know that uh, a couple months ago, we mentioned that, was it a Lagaya Michon mm-hmm. article mm-hmm. Um, where she wrote about sort of the way in which uh, the American palate it, it, like doesn't know how, what sense to make of of yeah. chewy and slippery yeah. texture. Oh, that's such a great article. Um, yeah, because you like, you know, you can tell that we don't have enough experience with it because when you try and describe it, it sounds it sounds like you're being negative, even if you're describing something you like. Yes. Okay. Let's pause here and uh, okay. and bring our guest into the fold. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk to him about gumbo and music. Duran Jones grew up in Hillaryville, Louisiana. He's a saxophonist, vocalist, and founder of Duran Jones and the Indications, who've released three critically acclaimed albums. His first solo album, Wait Till I Get Over, is out now on Dead Oceans, and it's fantastic. Deeply personal, full of vocal and instrumental hooks, and so much fun to sing along with while researching for a podcast episode. Duran Jones, thank you so much for joining us on Spilled Milk. Thank you for having me. Super excited to be here. All right. So on the album, you have a spoken word interlude about your hometown of Hillaryville called The Place You'd Most Like to Live. Can you start by telling us a little bit about growing up in Hillaryville, like its history, like and why you included this interlude on the album? Yeah. Hillaryville is a very, very small incorporated town in the Atchafalaya Basin of Louisiana. The land was given to a handful of formerly enslaved folks as a form of reparations. These handful of people, about eight or so, they came from one of the largest plantations in the country during the time called the Homus House Plantation or the Burnside Plantation, mm-hmm. uh, which had over 500 slaves, uh, 10,000 acres of sugar cane, and also 10, three sugar mills that they used to process and package the sugar as well. What these formerly enslaved people did was create their own little sustaining, self-sustaining town that is kind of disappearing to this day. So I really felt like it was important for me to highlight uh, how beautiful that place is and the history of it, uh, just to document it uh, in hopes that it won't disappear. Yeah. Did you grow up eating gumbo there? Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> okay. Like every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, even on Easter sometimes, um, it's always a holiday celebration. Yeah. And who who would be the one who made it? It would be my grandmother a good okay. chunk of the time. But my stepmom would make it. I mean, everybody 
it's we have this little joke in Louisiana that everybody loves to cook, even the men, even the kids. It's it's a very communal thing. So learning how to make gumbo is almost an essential part of being a Louisiana. So do you do you remember like how you learned to make it? Like uh, who who taught you? Like what the process was like? Oh my God, I still remember my first one. Um, <laughs> I was in college and I called my grandmother and I was like, I really want to try to make a gumbo. Can you like walk me through this? And um, it was pretty mid, you know, it wasn't the best. <laughs> sure. Like the first time. Yeah, of course. <laughs> is, is the first so time doing seen. anything going to be perfect? Oh, I don't no. think so. <laughs> but yeah, um, over the years, I've come up with my own little techniques and, and tricks. And um, some of them might, you know, raise an eyebrow to a Louisiana person. Oh, but, we're going to get into it for sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But uh, I, I believe in it tried and true that it works so Matthew and I have loved reading your recipe it totally feels like the kind of recipe that you would find on like an index card except in this case it would be like a really big index card because your recipe (laughs) is like wonderfully personal and specific to all of your uh yeah all the twists and turns you take with it so we wanted to ask you a bunch about your recipe Matthew do you want to start it off Okay, yeah. So we like before you came on, we talked about some of like kind of the dividing lines of gumbo and wanted to ask you, where do you come down on them? So uh, okra or filet powder, both or neither? I am an okra guy. I Mm -hmm. don't use filet powder. Okay. I know some people cook with filet powder in their gumbo, but what happens when you add the filet to the actual pot is whenever you cool down your gumbo and it's in the fridge, it will gelatinize. Mm-hmm. It'll get very yeah. gelatin-like. So it's really should be used, I think, as like a seasoning condiment, like you would use hot sauce. Mm-hmm. So at the table. Yes. You know, pour a little bit in your bowl. Okay. Yes. Okay. And uh, I got a question about the okra. (laughs) Okay, so you mention in your recipe, one of the the three steps you have the, you know, you have us do first is that we cook the okra, right? We roast it in the oven. Yes. Does that actually remove all the slippery stuff or do you need the slippery stuff to help do something with the texture of the finished gumbo? It's very unappealing to have a slimy gumbo to a Louisiana person. (laughs) Okay. And um, I've definitely had my few outside of Louisiana that were a little slimy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay, this is interesting. Okay. It's, uh, yeah, it's not the vibe. And my grandmother, the way that she would always, and it's so tried and true, the way she would always cook the slime out of her okra is just to bake it in the oven for 45 to an hour. And uh, usually it works fail proof, you know, stirring it every once in a while. Does the slime like, like come out <laughs> or does the slime like just disappear? It just what? disappears. It just, okay. yeah, it just cooks out. Yeah. Okay. 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 It's great. Okay. Seafood or chicken or both? Both. Okay. All the way, baby. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. Tomatoes or no tomatoes? No tomatoes. I know there's some places that do tomatoes. There's so many different gumbos um, depending on the region you are in Louisiana. And there's a red gumbo out there. But for me, I'm just sticking to the roux. No tomatoes. 
Okay. And the thing that uh, I was like most interested in your recipe, which uh, like I can't wait to share this recipe with our with our listeners, you bake the flour rather than cooking the roux down in a pot. Like what, yes. uh, where did, where did that come from? And like, and why do you do it that way? It sounds yes. amazing. This is the thing that I debate with so many Louisiana people. If I make gumbo for my family, I don't tell them that I'm going to use baked flour <laughs> because it, it makes them mad. Cause making a roux, it's like the, the first step. It's like a, a huge tradition in Louisiana, but I feel like I don't want to use all of that oil. I would rather use the or or get the oils from the chicken and the andouille sausage rather than pour okay. in a cup of oil or two cups of oil because usually whenever you make a roux that way a lot of folks have to skim the oil off of the top of their gumbo uh-huh. you baking your flour yes you baking okay. your flour you avoid all of the oil you avoid having to skim the oil off the top of your gumbo and I feel like it's a little healthier for you too. So, and so then when you do use the baked flour, you I saw that you add stock to the flour and kind of make like a thick slurry. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yep. This is so cool. I've yeah. never heard of doing. I mean, I know very little about gumbo, but I've never heard of this. I would have never considered it. Yeah. Really fascinating. Yeah, a good friend of mine shared this idea with me, and after doing a little research, I saw that. America Test Kitchen has a great recipe for baked flour. You can just bake a bunch of it and just store it in a cool, dry place, and mm-hmm. you'll always have some ready-to-go roux for you. Excellent. Can I ask a question about how big is the pot that you're making this in? Because I fear <laughs> that, that – so, like, my largest pot is, like, maybe a 12-quart stock pot, but I feel like I would need to, like – I would need to size up for this. Yes. Google Magnolite – gumbo pot and okay, okay. let's just do that that's right exactly now exactly what okay. you're gonna need gumbo pot yes okay. every louisiana person has a magna light in there in the kitchen if you oh. don't you're not a true louisiana <laughs> matthew what are you what are you finding over there like this this is like a whole cookware tradition that i knew nothing about and now that i'm looking at it like these these are like beautiful extremely functional pieces of cookware oh yeah very oh, yeah, cool the best Will you talk about the ice water step in your gumbo? I want to understand this. So tell us how this, how this works when you add it, et cetera. Yeah. You want to have at least about 16, 12 ounces water while you're cooking your gumbo, have that water in the freezer and make sure it gets really, really cold. And um, it's the last thing you want to put into your gumbo. A lot of folks in Louisiana feels like this shocks all of the meat just allows them to just absorb that flavor just a little bit more, just a little bit extra. And so shout out to the Cajun Ninja because he is someone who's like a big proponent of that. And um, I am totally convinced I do it with all my gumbos now. So wait, is the Cajun Ninja like a YouTuber or? He's like a social media personality okay. guy who just cooks some Cajun food. Yeah, he's really good. He's okay. really good. And may we share your recipe with our listeners on our website? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay. Oh man, I'm pumped. Okay. And Matthew, we also need to like post a link to the Magnolite gumbo yes. situation. Yes, absolutely. Okay. All right. So 
Let's talk a little bit about your new record, which Molly and I have both been listening to all week and we love it. What What's a song on, on the record that you're especially excited about? And we'll link to the whole album, of course, but I'd love to point listeners to a favorite song. Oh, man. Um, I would have to say the title track, Wait Till I Get Over, is mm-hmm. really special to me. Um, I, I grew up in a backwoods country church and every Sunday they would do this style of singing called Lining Hymns. And as a kid, I hated them so much. I just thought they were so boring. I thought they were like so old fashioned. Uh-huh. But now when I go back to Hillaryville and I go back home, they no longer do the lining hymns. And now I realize that the elders were trying to instill a tradition within me. And I really wanted to honor and pay homage to them on my record. So I tried to do a song loosely based in a lining hymn style. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That was one of my favorites too. And I love the, the first song. Also, Jerry Marie, is that what it's called? Yeah. So beautiful. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. Yes. Uh, I told I told Molly, like, I wouldn't make you geek out on singing the whole time, but I'm a vocalist also. I love your voice. And I just want to say you got, like, the most, like, powerful A4 that, uh, that just like rings out so perfectly that I wish I could do just like that. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I, this record was all about being free and I'm a loud, belty singer and I just wanted to lean in on that a lot. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> I also wanted to say congratulations on your first Pride and on coming out. Ooh, thank you yeah. so much. Yeah, I am someone who came out, uh, you know, it well into adulthood and it's pretty great. Molly, thank you so much for that. This has been the most freeing year of my life. Oh, that's oh. wonderful. And, yeah. And I've just been having a little hot boy summer here, you know, like, <laughs> yes. it's just been so awesome. It's been so awesome. Pride was so lit. It was so great. Oh, congratulations. Uh, oh, I'm so happy for you. And I, I know that feeling in my own life. So yeah. I'm so happy for you. Thank you. Duran, is there anything else you would like to plug? I'm going to be on the road for the rest of the year, starting in Japan this week. Oh, wow. And headed to Newport Festival a little later and London and Paris. I'm going to do a whole U.S. tour in oh September, God. October, and the beginning of November. So check me out, duran-jones.com for the dates. I'd love to see some listeners out there. Okay, oh, well, one more question. Now that I know you're heading to Japan, which is one of our favorite places to eat, what's what's something you're looking forward to eating in Japan? Oh my gosh, there's so much. I really want to try all the regional ramens. Oh, yes. Uh, I'm going to go to Okinawa, <laughs> Osaka, and Tokyo. Um, I'm looking at my suitcase right now. I kept the whole empty part of it because I really I heard about these like Michelin star. There's a Michelin star restaurant that came out with an instant ramen. Mm-hmm. And oh, it's yes. fairly expensive to get it shipped here, but it's super cheap over there. Like, it's a, you know, it's only a couple of yen or something along those lines. Yeah. And so I want to pack a bunch of those. Definitely would love to go get some great sushi. You're yeah. going to have a wonderful time. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I can't wait. Oh, my God. I can't wait. Amazing. Oh, have the best time. I will. Congratulations on the new album. Oh, thank you so much. Really appreciate you guys. All right, Duran, thanks again for being on Spilled Milk. Thank you so much. Oh, man. Durand Jones. Thank you again. Yeah, let's uh, let's see if we can get him back. And, uh, you know, Durand Jones is, a, is on the same record label as past guest uh, Michelle Zahner. 
and uh, just just saying, if any public if the publicist <laughs> is listening, uh, some other people on the same label are Phoebe Bridgers and Mitski. Just saying, oh, we'd be happy to have him on. I wasn't even going to say that. I was just going to like just saying. Okay, that was fantastic. Um, and yeah, we will post Duran's recipe on the website. Um, and uh, we all need to go out and get the appropriate cookware for the occasion. Magnolite. And uh, you know what? This yeah. is this is going to be like a joke for like two people and possibly not even a joke. Uh, but another another band on that on Dead Oceans is uh, Slow Dive, whose most famous album was called Suvlaki in like 1994, like classic shoegaze album. What if we got someone from Slow Dive on the show to talk about actual Suvlaki? I think that would be great. OK, I'm going to I'm going to see if we can do this. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Probably okay. they'll say no, but Okay, great. All right, Matthew, do we have any spilled mail today? We sure do, and it's uh, it's very short. So we asked listeners what spilled milk's listeners should be called. Like I made up the term Lily, listener I'd like to yum, which you hated, but someone one person actually used in an email. Uh, and so far we've gotten two responses, and so it's not too late to weigh in. Contact <laughs> at spilledmilkpodcast.com. What do you think a spilled milk listener should be called? So here's what we've got so far. Listener Megan recommends Milkmaids or C-L-O-S-M-P, which stands for Collective Listeners of Spilled Milk Podcast, which is pronounced clump. The S is silent. I... I really like that. I kind of do so like like this one. This one goes out to the clump. Like only only like, you know, longtime clompers are going to know what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You said there was another one, too. Oh, yeah. From listener Dan. And what's said, that one? Uh, Spilksters. Spilksters. I like it. Yeah. Okay. I okay. think, I, I mean, I like all of these so far. I think I'm going to, like, the one I'm going to actually start saying is clomp because it's the most fun to say. <laughs> it is. Okay. And I, and I like the idea that that rather than being a name for an, an individual listener, it's more of like it's a Borg cult. sort of thing. Yes. <laughs> that uh, that it, our listeners have been assimilated into a collective. Yes, a hive hive mind. <laughs> yes. All right. Mm -hmm. That's They're working hard to bring us our next episode. That's right. Oh wait, the way it works is like listeners. <laughs> listeners are like like our drones. No, that... I was I was just imagining like this buzzing mind out mm -hmm. there that's like thinking up our next episodes. Oh, I would love that. Thinking up episodes is hard. It is really hard, <laughs> um, especially when we are on number oh what six hundred and seven. <laughs> Matthew, I, like sometimes it feels like a joke how long we've been doing this show. It's it does crazy. seem like a joke. And then and yet and then like someone will say like, you never did an episode on like cereal. I'm like, oh, my God, we never did an episode. We did do an ep many episodes on cereal. That was a bad example. But, well, like, but like, I think we haven't done a spaghetti episode. That's right. And right? we never will. OK, wow. All right. Matthew has spoken. No, we should do a spaghetti episode. The great and powerful Matthew. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm like a like, a, you know, don't look behind the curtain because you'll see my butt. <laughs> that's what happens in Wizard of Oz, right? That is right. That's okay. that's exactly why you don't look behind the curtain. <laughs> the wizard do you mean is, the shower curtain? He's in the shower. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, the hive mind is at work here. <laughs> okay. okay speaking of things that buzz yeah you have a now but wow it's called honeybees and distant thunder by riku onda that uh, that was the best segue we've ever done right <laughs> that was really good i yeah. mean uh, wow 
Okay, yes. so this is this is the first the uh, English translation for the first time in English of a book that was a massive bestseller and winner of the Naoki Prize, which is a huge literature prize in Japan when it was first published in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Riku Onda, like like I feel like more so in Japan than in the U.S., like writers often work in like several different genres. Um, and so like the, I've read two previous books by Riku Onda and one of them was like a, a mystery, like a really interesting, like multiple points of view, like uh, mystery that was fantastic called the Aosawa murders. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, this book is completely different. It is about three young people participating in a classical piano competition. And I'm about halfway through and it's not really what I expected in that, like so far, at least the drama doesn't really hang on who wins the competition. Competition. And okay. like, if I was going to describe the book at this point, I would say it's sort of about how music can ruin your life. But if something is going to ruin your life, which it probably is, music is a pretty good choice. So is this like a cheerful pessimism? It's sort of a cheerful pessimism. Is okay. that I don't think I know that term, but I but I immediately get what you mean. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I think I think that. Well, I think of um, you and I have both read uh, Four Thousand Weeks by Oliver yes. Berkman, right? Mm-hmm. I think of that as a cheerful, pessimistic, yeah, or a cheerfully pessimistic book. That's great. Yeah, so it's so it's about like you know the, these young people and like their relationship with music and uh, like you know. It's it's a lot of stuff about classical music, which I don't think of myself as really being interested in, but like this book makes it interesting and really brings it to life. Um, mm-hmm. Honeybees and Distant Thunder. Um, and also like she is just a wildly good writer and like, you know, describes things in very unexpected ways and is just like the way she describes music is extremely vivid and unexpected. Um, and I also like I also read her book Night Picnic in Japanese, which is also a very unusual book that I hope gets translated next because it's really good. Wow. Okay. Um, this is fantastic. The This sounds really interesting. So that is uh, Honeybees and Distant Thunder by Riku Onda. Yep. And it's out now. Great. Well, our producer is Abby Circatella. Uh, Molly's got a newsletter that you may have already subscribed to, but if you haven't, you should, because it's called I've Got a Feeling, and it's available at mollyweisenberg.substack.com, and it's uh, I'm always so excited when it lands in my inbox. Oh, thanks. Um, I, I'm excited that I get to write it. You know, like, uh, I wrote about food for a long time, and I like writing about food, but what I really like about this Substack is I kind of get to do whatever I want. Yeah, that's what I like about it, too. I, I never know what I'm going to get, but I know it's going to be something good. Great. Thanks, Matthew. Um, I mentioned this a while back and may have already plugged it on the show, but it will definitely be out by the time you hear this because I'm like submitting it today. My band Early to the Airport did a cover of Robin's song Dancing on My Own with uh, lead vocals by me. And uh, that is available uh, wherever you get music. All right, everybody. Uh, And yeah, the band name again is Early to the Airport. Check that out. Okay, you should talk with other Spilled Milk listeners at everythingspilledmilk.reddit.com. Yep, probably. Maybe the maybe like a, a gumbo debate is already breaking out. That would make me so happy. Wow, breaking out like pimples? Uh, yeah, maybe maybe like everyone's breaking out and, and sharing like uh, zit <laughs> remedies. Yeah, um, okay. yeah, like someone someone should start a thread about like what should spilled milk listeners be called. That would be a great way to to, to shoot ideas back and forth. I like, thought we among, decided on the clump. It's the it's the clump, but I still want more. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Thanks again. Like, and we should uh, once again. Duran Jones's album is called "Wait Till I Get Over," and uh, you can you can hear that anywhere you get music, and it's fantastic. 
And uh, until next time, thank you for listening to Spilled Milk. The show that's full of, of sassafras. And slime. Yeah, I'm Molly Weisenberg. And I'm Matthew Amsterburton. Head to tail. Yeah. Oh, wait, there's tails. <laughs> you know what? Let's let's grab it. Let's do an episode about Dumbo, like an elephant that can fly. Um, you know, we have one of those Bumbo seats. Oh, is that? Yeah. Where you like the you like kind of cram the baby into it. Yeah. So, like, I mean, you know, gumbo, bumbo, dumbo, bumbo, jumbo. Uh-huh. Uh, what uh, else? Uh, Dalton Trumbo. Who's that? Uh, he was I th- like an actor, maybe a screenwriter. Okay, cool. Um, Let's yep. do that too. Maybe, maybe he got like embroiled in the uh, you know uh, red scare, like uh, McCarthyism. Um, Matthew, should we do this? Let's do this. Let's do this. <laughs>